I've met so many people who have lost loved ones as a direct result of their eating disorder, and I've never met one who didn't experience a barrier to eating disorder care. And it frankly pisses me off. There is no reason <laughs> for this to not be resolved because we know what to do. Hello, and welcome to Equipped to Recover, where we explore the intersection of recovery stories and eating disorder science to show you that recovery is not only possible, it is so worth it. I'm Christina Safran, co-founder and CEO of Equip, and today I'm so thrilled to be joined by Rebecca Ayer, one of my great friends and colleagues. She's an experienced therapist specializing in the care of eating disorders and trauma, and her career has covered a variety of different areas, including eating disorder treatment, marketing, and philanthropy. And those experiences, uh, thankfully, led her to Project Heal, where a little over three years ago, she stepped in as CEO of Project Heal, a title that we both held uh, as she entered the role shortly after I stepped away to create Equip. And, you know, I had asked her, would you would you come in and, and lead Project Heal into the next era? And she's done such an amazing and fantastic job. So I'm so excited for her to be here with us today. Rebecca is super passionate about increasing access to treatment and dismantling oppressive systems, both inside and outside the eating disorder world. And so I'm really excited for everyone to listen in as Rebecca and I discuss ways to strengthen, deepen, and navigate your recovery from an eating disorder. Welcome, Rebecca. Yay, I'm so glad to be here. Some of my favorite people have already beat me to the punch on this podcast, so. <laughs> We've both been very busy and had some scheduling difficulties, so I'm glad that we could be here now. Um, but let's, I want to start at the beginning. Can you just tell the listeners about your journey into the eating disorder field? Yeah, well, it's it was by accident, honestly. I did not intend to be part of the eating disorder field, but my experiences very clearly wanted me here. Both of my sisters and my mother struggled with an eating disorder throughout my childhood, and I'm the only person in my family that has not been diagnosed with an eating disorder. And honestly, because of that experience, I really did not want to work with eating disorders, but um, I got my bachelor's in psychology and then I got my master's in counseling psychology. And when it came time to my internship, I wanted to go to any internship except for the eating disorder treatment center that was there. And then I, of course, ended up having an amazing conversation with them and realizing that I really understood eating disorders, having spent so much time around them and did my clinical internship at a treatment center and then stayed there for five years. And this has now been really become my area of expertise. And I will say that once I got into this field, I fell madly in love with it. I think actually working with people who are in treatment, who are work striving uh, and committed to heal from their eating disorders was really healing for me because of those people who in my personal life have had eating disorders, none of them had been to treatment and were committed to recovery. And I realized that that was really the missing piece to me having some hope about eating disorder healing. I, up until being in treatment spaces, I had never even imagined that eating disorder healing was a possibility. And then I got to see it firsthand and it was really stunning. Your story is so powerful. And I think it's so important to have the perspective of family members. And so I'm curious, like, what has your journey as a family member taught you uh, about how to help people struggling with eating disorders? Yeah, it's taught me a lot of things. I think the main thing that I knew before I ever worked with eating disorders is that they really weren't about what they seemed like they were about. 
they're about much more complicated things. And I think of them obviously as multifunctional and, and multi-systemic, but they're also metaphors. There's always a story that an eating disorder is telling about a person's internal experience that they might not have words for. And so as a very kind of story and word-oriented person who's very meaning-making oriented, I really understood eating disorders as something that, that a person was doing to try to make meaning or that they were sort of acting out about something of their internal experience that they didn't understand yet. And so I think that was the thing that growing up around it really taught me. I think the other thing that it taught me was that eating disorders really get in the way of connection because my relationship with all of those people were strained because of their preoccupation with food and, and image and things like that. And then I think lastly, frankly, being in close proximity to folks with eating disorders and particularly my mom with whom I had a really strained relationship really, I think, is one of the main reasons I didn't develop an eating disorder. And that's not something everyone can say. I think a lot of people who are raised by a parent with an eating disorder make them more likely, actually, to develop an eating disorder. They're not only genetic, but they're learned behaviors, for sure, in, in family environments. And I think for me, because my relationship with my mom was strained, I was so determined not to be like my mom that I think it was actually the core protective factor for me. And so as I saw my mom measuring out her food and body checking and compulsively exercising, I went in the opposite direction. <laughs> and I think, honestly, that saved my life in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, it's played a really, really big role in my life. And, you know, I've been thinking a lot more recently about the fact that I ended up not only an eating disorder therapist, but now the CEO of an eating disorder nonprofit. And... I'm the only one in my family that didn't have an eating disorder. I'm very reflective on what that says about my role in my family. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's so interesting that your protective factor could have been someone else's, you know, trigger into an eating disorder. Um, and we're so lucky that it, it led you in a different direction. And I think you've gotten so powerful to have that kind of other perspective of, of a supporter and a carer, which are so important in the healing journey. Yeah. And I will just add, I think the protective factor was seeing what it costs, but also it was like a temperament trait that I had and still have, which is like the ability and sort of willingness to be against. <laughs> and I think that was probably the true protective factor. That makes a lot of sense to me. I have a bit of contrarian in me as well. And yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Well, well, tell us about, so you started working at this treatment center as a therapist and how did you move from that to getting involved with Project Heal? Well, it was a long and winding road. Like you said, I have done a lot of um, marketing and communications and strategic um, expansion for startups and random things in between my clinical journey and my nonprofit leadership journey, because I really needed to take a break after my five years, six years in eating disorder treatment um, at the beginning. But I'm really glad to be back. I think the thing that drew me to Project Heal originally is that when I was working at that treatment center, I was working in admissions and I would take calls from people who were seeking treatment and we had to turn away a good 25 to 50% of them because their insurance wasn't accepted. And the only place we could send folks with government funded insurance like Medicaid or Medicare um, or TRICARE was Project Heal. So I always knew Project Heal to be the only organization like it. And I had no idea what happened to those folks after I sent them your way, but I did send them your way, and I was really grateful for a resource to give them. And then I think 
seeing the opportunity at Project Heal back in 2019, it really felt like a culmination of not only like my eating disorder knowledge, but my awareness of all the barriers to care and the inadequacies of the current treatment model. But also it was like leveraging all of my random mishmash of skills and jobs over the years. I'm definitely like a clinician at heart with a traditional eating disorder background, but not a lot of other eating disorder clinicians really understand insurance or have done national program expansion or have done, you know, um, like high level marketing campaigns. And so what felt like a really sloppy resume prior to Project Heal suddenly felt like the right resume when when Project Heal came along. Yeah. And you joined us as the head of our treatment access program. And then fairly quickly, um, I approached you to step in as CEO, which you did in April of 2020. Uh, perhaps the hardest time ever to take the reins of a nonprofit. I'm curious about how that time frame informed your initial goals and focus areas for Project Yelp. Frankly, it had everything to do with the direction that I took Project Heal. And I have no idea where I would have taken Project Heal if I had come on at any other time. I think the two big things happening at that time, in addition to a founder-CEO exit of someone sparkly and beloved like yourself, right? That's always a tentative time for nonprofits. And so we really needed a crisp and clarified vision um, that wasn't figurehead dependent. Uh, and I knew I wasn't going to be able to replace you. But the two big things that really shaped my strategic direction were the pandemic and the racial justice movement that was ha- ended up happening just a month and a half later. So as I was redirecting, you know, re-envisioning our mission and vision and values and programs, I knew that with the pandemic, millions of people were losing their jobs and their insurance. And I knew, having understood eating disorders, that eating disorders would get worse in the context of profound anxiety and isolation. And so understanding that eating disorders would get worse and access to care would be even harder, I thought it was really important as the only nonprofit that's focused exclusively on access to care that Project Heal really doubled down on that mission. And so as much as we loved our peer support program uh, that was called Communities of Healing, and it was a really important part of our work, it was important for us to divide and conquer and let other nonprofits who had been doing peer support for a long time continue doing that. And I'm so grateful that so many other nonprofits do peer support and group support. Uh, we are the only organization that is helping people who can't get into treatment get into treatment in any kind of scalable way. And so we, of course, saw that our applications went up and we needed to figure out a more scalable model. In 2019, we helped 25 people get into eating disorder care. And then at the end of 2020, we had helped 214. And so the ability to figure out how to reconfigure our resources and help more people was really essential at that time. And since then, of course, it's gone up significantly each year after year. The racial justice movement's really important too because we had talked for a long time at Project Heal about the financial barriers and the insurance barriers, and we always acknowledged that there were systemic barriers for people who didn't fit the stereotype of who has eating disorders or what eating disorders look like. But we really weren't overtly political or social justice oriented in our language or in our brand. And it's interesting talking to you about this because this was your brand. So just, you know, speaking candidly, and we've had all of these conversations, like, the organization was founded by you and one of your friends when you were teenagers. And I think the brand reflected that and the and it, it reflected lived experience that was at the heart of Project Heal. It had founders and staff with lived experience. And it was also primarily staffed by, by women. And so we had like a pastel butterfly logo and it felt very 
almost like accidentally reinforcing of some of those stereotypes that we knew not to be true. And so against the backdrop of the racial justice movement, when really the eating disorder field, like all other industries, but especially came to a head with itself through the leadership and accountability practices of so many um, clinicians of color and patients of color who had long felt excluded by the eating disorder field, we had a real reckoning in our field of like, look around, why are there so few people of color? Why are there so few people of size? Why are there so few LGBTQ plus transgender and gender nonconforming folks? Why are there so few people of size? Like, why are there so few men and boys, right? Why is this field so homogenous? And so understanding that, yes, financial barriers and, and healthcare barriers exist across the spectrum and affect people of almost every socioeconomic status, unless they're exorbitantly wealthy, you're going to run into those barriers. The systemic barriers really compound those barriers. And so if you fall outside of that eating disorder stereotype of, I th- what do they call it? Swag, right? Skinny, white, affluent girl. <laughs> so you have the stereotype of what an eating disorder looks like. And if you fall outside of that, then you're that much more likely to run into those financial and healthcare barriers. Not only because the eating disorder treatment holds those biases, not just society, but the eating disorder field, but because those identities are also more likely to coincide with more financial barriers because of systemic injustice in the country. And so I really feel like the social justice movement in the summer of 2020, like, first of all, was really important for our society on on the whole. And I, I wish more folks were still as engaged in those conversations. But it allowed me to move really, really quickly down some paths that I think might have seemed radical if it, if that backdrop wasn't there to become a more overtly social justice oriented organization who's being really candid about some of these barriers. And I think the last thing I'm going to say about this is that it's not for me a flavor of the month. It's something I've been committed to for a long time. And it's also not something that felt like, you know, the right angle to take because it was happening in the news. It's tied to the data about barriers to access. It's not personal, like it's not, a, it's not my personal whim, it's proven in the data. So anyone who comes to Project Heal and goes, whoa, 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 why are you focusing on all of these marginalized communities? It's like, I'm obligated if I'm committed to breaking down barriers to care to talk about systemic barriers. There is no way to not be political if you care about equitable access, period. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, we've had a lot of conversations about it. And I think it was so smart the direction that you took it in and you kind of came to me and said here's what I'm thinking and you know I have your blessing and I think especially look you know the communities of healing was you know one of my my babies uh it it made sense it made all the sense in the world in a time when more and more people were losing their jobs and their health insurance and access to income and eating disorders were going to be skyrocketing. Project was the only organization who has continually been this beacon of hope and really the only one for folks who need access to care. And so I think it's so smart. Like oftentimes you try to do everything and you end up doing nothing really well. And the numbers speak for themselves in terms mm-hmm. of the impact that you've been able to have. And yeah, focusing on that, look, it's it's a shame that the eating disorder field is a field in which, <laughs> frankly, even if you are a swag, you're probably not getting access to good treatment, but certainly disproportionately marginalized folks, folks of color, folks in larger bodies, folks who are gender nonconforming are facing uphill barriers. And so 
it, it made all the sense in the world. And I'm so proud of the direction that you've taken it in and the impact that you've been able to have, which is where I want to pivot to just brag a little bit on like, <laughs> can you tell us about what Project Heal is up to today? What are you most excited about? Yeah. So last December, we did crunch some numbers and realized that in the last three years, we increased the number of people we were able to serve by 3,416% over those three years, which is just, you know, as soon as you have like a thousand percent number, you're just like, okay, so things are, things are happening. And, you know, it's always really important to me to remember that each of those numbers is a is a story um, with a family and with loved ones and you know all of the nuances that come with being a human being like and I it matters the most to me that we're able to help so many individuals but I think being able to see the scale continue to grow means a lot to me too because honestly there are millions of people in the United States facing barriers to care and so as long as our numbers are in the hundreds it just feels like we're making a drop in the bucket and of course each of those lives is so important to me, but I really want to be making substantive impact on those numbers. And so the more resources Project Heal has, the more people we can say yes to. And so that's what gets me out of bed every morning and, you know, compels me to keep <laughs> asking people to donate <laughs> to Project Heal, which is not my favorite thing to do. Who likes asking people for money? Um, but knowing where it's going and and the you know life changing results that it actually does create in real people's lives really matters to me. The other thing I think that I'm the most excited about, I had been thinking for a long time about adding a clinical assessment program to Project Heal's portfolio, and part of that had to do with the fact that we understand how many barriers there are to diagnosis, and we also understand how many barriers there are when diagnosis is inaccurate or late or hard to access, how much that prevents people from being able to access the care that they need. And it felt like such a low lift thing to do uh, that we could really do at capacity and resolve a big gap in the eating disorder space. Because currently you really either need access to a specialist who are very overfull right now and would charge you for it, or you could go to a treatment center who would do it for free, but only if you have the right insurance and are a prospective patient. And so there's like, where do I go to find out what's happening with my loved one? Where do I go to find out what's happening with me? Where do I go to find out what, where to start? And Google is not that helpful when you're looking for eating disorder care because it's mostly Google ads. <laughs> and so you're, you're looking for information, but you're getting marketing. Um, and so we thought it was really important considering that we have no skin in the game and nothing to gain by who we recommend to go where or what diagnosis a person has. Um, it doesn't do anything for us, but it does a lot for them. I thought that was something that we could do in a really impartial way. And we were able to launch that last year, and I'm really, really proud of it. And it's scaling as we're bringing on clinical interns to help us ex expand the program. And I think that barriers to diagnosis are so, so important for the trajectory of an illness. And so I'm really proud of that. We also had, for three years, been working on a research study Turns out research takes a really long time. Um, <laughs> but what I found out with you, I think in month three of being the treatment access program director, is that you're not going to be able to change the minds of decision makers, policymakers, insurance companies, lawmakers, et cetera, unless you have hard data. Because we have unlimited you know, access to, to tragic stories, and those anecdotes really matter, and we, we care about storytelling. But we need hard data to prove out 
true policy changes. And so we launched a study into the quant- like to quantitatively evaluate the barriers to access that people are experiencing in the United States. It turns out that study did not exist prior to this. And so we finally finished it and it's under peer review right now. And there's going to be hopefully so much great advocacy and change making in the eating disorder field as a result of those data points. And so we don't have to talk in hypotheticals anymore and we don't have to lean on, you know, empathy, even though I wish we could lean on empathy. I wish we could lean on common sense, but we can actually show the facts of how pervasive these barriers are. And I'm, I'm really grateful to have been able to be a part of authoring that study. Um, we have a lot of other things going on, but I think those are the two biggest things. Because ultimately, my goal is that Project Hill really wouldn't need to exist in 20 years. Like, I want to actually break down these barriers once and for all, not one person at a time. In the meantime, I will break them down one person at a time. But I also want to be breaking them down once and for all so that anyone with an eating disorder in the United States could access quality care affordably and early enough into their journey for it to be not life interrupting, but just life-saving. Yeah. Can you just give some color to one, the numbers? I mean, the 3000% increase is like so freaking phenomenal, like (laughs) 25 people the year before you joined to how many folks? And then also would love to tell you, tell us a, a little bit about you know, maybe I think it's data and stories. So some of the stories of like what you're seeing in the clinical assessment program and, you know, the impact that that program is having. So last year in 2022, we delivered over 1,200 direct services to 756 people. So that means that some of those people received multiple services. And our four programs are clinical assessment, treatment placements, which is basically getting people into treatment, into treatment for free at all kinds of levels of care. Cash assistance, so we just pay out of pocket for tertiary costs related to people getting into treatment, and then insurance navigation, so helping people understand their benefits, advocate for coverage, get single case agreements, file appeals, get new insurance, you know, during a qualifying event or an open enrollment period. So there's a lot of ways we're trying to help people maximize their insurance coverage and understand it to their benefit. So basically, 756 people got any combination of those things that helped them get into treatment. So 756 people were able to get into treatment with the help of all those different levers that we were able to pull. Um, And I think what's really powerful to me is that by being more explicit about focusing on people who have long felt excluded and ignored by the eating disorder field, we've been able to help people get into treatment who have for a long time and maybe even recently not felt like they belonged in this space or like it was it was for them. And I think that the field has a very long way to go before we've actually remedied those problems. But 35%, I believe, of our beneficiaries last year were BIPOC. Um, I think like 70% were LGBTQ+. Um, I think 70% were over the age of 24, which is interesting. Not to say that that's when their eating disorder started, but that's when their insurance oftentimes leaves them out. And when long untreated eating disorders need the most care um, and their bodies have done all kinds of maladaptive things that complicate the medical necessity piece of authorization. And then I I believe it's like 50% of our beneficiaries are disabled. So there's a lot of really interesting layers of like when you go out of your way to actually design programming to help people who are not traditionally centered in spaces, um, over time you can really earn their trust and and get them to reach out to you for help because I think we all really care about 
equity to equitable access and, and diversity and inclusion and all of these words, but there's work that you need to do to earn the trust of people who don't, don't typically trust nonprofits or the medical landscape to actually prioritize them in substantive ways. And so I think those things make me the proudest. And that doesn't mean that we don't help people across identities or even people who fit that stereotype. But I think what it means is that as far as who we're helping getting into treatment, I think those numbers are not reflected in traditional eating disorder spaces, which I feel really grateful for. Can you help us understand, help the listeners understand, like what are the biggest barriers to treatment access? How is, you know, treatment access harder when you are a member of a marginalized community? Maybe share a little bit of the barriers to access study and kind of what was found and then your thoughts on some of the solutions that need to be implemented in the field. Oh my gosh. Do we have like a three hour? How much time do we have? <laughs> so we have, you know, at Project Heal really analyzed the space and have come up with around 150 different unique barriers that people experience in all kinds of buckets, systemic, uh, cultural, diagnostic, treatment quality, healthcare, financial, et cetera. But this, the results of the data were really interesting. And I think it's important to share some of these numbers. In our study, we found that the highest reported barrier to care was weight stigma. 70% of people said weight stigma was a barrier to accessing quality treatment. 56% said that they were not diagnosed with an eating disorder until it was much more entrenched and harder to treat. And those are the two largest numbers. There's unfortunately very high numbers across the barriers that we measured in the study. But I think weight stigma and early screening are really important. And I, and I think they're related to each other. A lot of people's eating disorders are missed in childhood and adolescence when the eating disorder is onset because doctors are not trained, teachers are not trained, parents are not trained to spot an eating disorder unless it looks a specific way. And typically that involves someone being falling off their growth uh, curves and being, you know, medically underweight. And so what we know is that the majority of people with eating disorders are not medically underweight. And so if we're waiting for them to look like that, we're going to miss their eating disorders. And another piece of our study revealed that the average respondent had five years between eating disorder onset and diagnosis. And so I think that weight stigma is a part of that failure to screen and to catch eating disorders early. There's a lot of other factors, right? Men and boys don't get eating disorders. False. <laughs> like, oh, you hate your body because you're trans, but it's all in your head. False, right? Like the confusion between body dysmorphia and gender dysphoria. Um, the ways in which I think eating disorders show up differently in communities of color or in athletes or in all these different kind of populations. I think those things really get in the way of that early screening. But weight stigma for sure is the biggest one. And, and there's other layers to weight stigma I want to touch on. Right now, anorexia is the only diagnosis in the, eating, in the DSM that has a biometric as a criteria for diagnosis for a mental health condition. And so my goal, my dream would be for that to no longer be the case because there's a separate diagnosis that gratefully was added in, I, I think, 2015, atypical anorexia under OSFED. And it's actually not atypical at all. It's actually a lot more typical. And the data in our study showed that people who had that diagnosis were significantly less likely to get their eating disorder care covered, even though the research is clear that their eating disorders are just as dangerous and just as worthy of being taken seriously and worthy of care. And so that medical criteria piece and insurance authorization is really helped by the weight stigma that's built into the diagnostic criteria. And I think if we could shift our understanding of weight, <laughs> which is a big task, 
But especially with kids, <laughs> if we could help people not infuse our children with that weight bias and not immediately try to help them at all costs not get fat, right? We would prevent a lot of eating disorders and it would also make us a lot better at detecting eating disorders early. And if we didn't have that built into our authorization practices, we could get people into care as soon as they have an eating disorder rather than once it's so entrenched that they are experiencing organ failure or it's so entrenched that it will take years to recover from. And that isn't necessary if we can just do a better job at understanding what's really going on. Oh yeah, not only are we missing it, but we are prescribing eating disorders. We are encouraging eating disorders. And you know um, you know, better than I do that you have oftentimes one shot for folks to reach out for help. And if you miss that opportunity and if you reinforce the eating disorder, that might be the person's last time they're going to be reaching out for years and years and years on the damage that that really does. So yeah. I love that you shed light on that. Yeah, it's it's devastating to me because this is not a, a disorder to trifle with. This is a very dangerous illness. And I think we talk a lot about the fatality rate and the high mortality rate, and we understand that. But I'm like, when you not only miss someone early on in their diagnosis process, or, or you make it worse by actually prescribing the eating disorder, that person might reach out for help, might not but has a, a really troubling uh, likelihood of passing away as a direct result of their eating disorder. So this isn't just about like, oh, you've really damaged their self-esteem or, oh, you've really like lowered their quality of life or, you know, made them feel bad about themselves. You're really, really gambling with someone's livelihood. And that doesn't just affect the individual, which should be enough, but it affects entire families and ecosystems when people can't access the care that they need because of these biases. And I've met so many people who have lost loved ones as a direct result of their eating disorder. And I've never met one who didn't experience a barrier to eating disorder care. And it frankly pisses me off. There is no reason <laughs> for this to not be resolved because we know what to do. How do we help the world better understand that eating disorders affect all people? I think we've we've had some progress in the field, and yet it still feels like sometimes you and I are spouting off these statistics, and minds are blown, right? And these are some of the I often talk about my friends who you know majored in psychology at Ivy League schools, like men get eating disorders. Like, how do we start to change this? Oh, there's so many things to say here, and it's really. A pipeline issue uh, that has so many different stages. I think that first and foremost, we need people from all of the different communities that are affected by eating disorders to be part of the field, to be speaking publicly, to be leading research, to be in C-suite leadership roles at eating disorder organizations, because when, when we see something, we understand it. Just hearing the statistic is not the same. And, and frankly, hearing the statistic, a bunch of white people talking about how much more common certain eating disorders are in certain, you know, race groups. It's like, not who, who are we talking to, right? We need actually clinicians of color to know that eating disorders are occurring in higher rates in their own communities. And we need to equip them to screen and to treat and to teach us how to treat those diagnoses in their own communities. I don't, I do not believe 
that black eating disorder healing is going to be conceived of by a really good white clinician. I think it's going to be conceived of by a really good black clinician. And so we need to get more folks access to higher education, more folks entering the eating disorder field. We need to do a better job training people about eating disorders in at least a little bit more depth, if not have a whole course dedicated to eating disorders in graduate programs. I want to see eating disorder competency as a licensure requirement for clinicians of all different practices. And so that's how we do it. I I think it has to be an expansion of the eating disorder field. This needs to be taken out of the niche bucket of healthcare and made part of general healthcare requirements um, because this is so common and because it is so fatal. We have no excuse not to have this be part of everybody who is in any kind of treatment position understanding. And, And there's a lot of inequities in these fields anyway, but at the very least, let's train the ones that are here, right? And that's something that we haven't done. And I think then that knowledge starts trickling out outside of the bubble that is the eating disorder world right now. Frankly, eating disorders are better understood in white, affluent, female communities. <laughs> like, And eating disorders are occurring in other communities, sometimes at equal rates and sometimes at higher rates. And those communities themselves don't have the language or the understanding always of how to talk about that. So there just have to be people more people equipped to understand this outside of us talking to each other about it. It's cool that we talk about it. It's important that we talk about it, but we can't keep just talking to ourselves. And Project Heal is really at ground zero of that work because at the end of the day, if you know marginalized folks don't have access to recovery, it's they- a self-perpetuating cycle. And so this is why the work is just so, so important. Yeah, it's so true because you know this, like so many people who have the privilege of accessing treatment end up going into the field because they understand they want to give back. They experienced, you know, that healing and that transformation themselves and they want to pay it forward. Like if we're not helping other communities and populations heal, they don't ever get to do that in their own communities. And I think there are obviously growing numbers of um, diverse folks in this field and I'm, I'm eager to see it, but we, we're so far behind. I mean, it's like less than 5% of our field is BIPOC. And so we got a long way to go. Well, last question, stepping back to evaluate the fields, what excites you about what you've seen in terms of progress over the last three years and where do we still have a long way to go? <laughs> well, a lot of what I just said is, is where we have a lot of room to grow. I think, um, I'd like to see more eating disorder nonprofit leaders be people of color, people of size, LGBTQ plus folks. That includes Project Heal, and that's part of my personal kind of succession plan that I think about and talk about with my board all the time. Um, I'd like to see a lot more eating disorder training reaching other communities outside of this homogenous little bucket that we have here. Um, So I think representation in the field is really, really lacking. And then I think there's a lot to be said about actual depth learning, right? I think a lot more, something that has been exciting is that a lot more treatment centers and providers are talking about these things than ever before, but we have to also be doing. So I want to see more and more of that talking turning into doing. The thing that excites me the most, honestly, and this is not to suck up to you, is the silver lining of the pandemic being telehealth and virtual care. Because as far as access goes, when we did the study, 
the geographic barriers that were identified and endorsed by a lot of our participants have essentially been eliminated in the last two years by treatment centers like Equip. Because the ability to access quality care from home, not get into your car, not spend a ton of time on your commute is truly game-changing because our past treatment models essentially left anyone who was in a rural area or outside of a major metropolitan area or someone with a disability or someone with multiple kids or someone with multiple jobs or someone with a severe social anxiety or agoraphobia, like, couldn't go. Period wasn't an option. Or maybe they have a dependent at home that they can't leave, right? There's so many reasons people can't make, you know, an hour and a half long drive multiple times a week or daily or why they can't leave their home for four, six, 12 weeks. I mean, that's prohibitive. So I'm really, really thrilled with this and I'm hopeful to see it continue. And I think that's exactly the kind of lever that like Mother Nature needed to pull for us, (laughs) right? Like I think we had people who were interested in innovation and telehealth and virtual care. And there was a lot of resistance, including from me, right? I'm a clinician. I'm all about like the energy in the room and the relationship in the room. And I'm like, okay, I guess it turned out that we could probably do a lot of things (laughs) virtually, (laughs) right? And I think we needed a big outside force to force us to do that. And I think that's going to be true of some of these other big levers that need to change, right? To diversify and expand the eating disorder field, to, to change the DSM, to really make eating disorder screening and early interventions happen. I think there needs to be like a big switch flipped and even just diversifying people's visual kind of mental understandings of eating disorders. There needs to be like almost a tipping point, some big force of nature, whether that's a person with significant influence telling their story, whether it's a movie that really shifts our cultural imagination about it, whether it's a a research study that proves once and for all that intentional weight loss in childhood directly, I mean, we know this already, it already has been proven in research, but like, let's prove what we all understand, which is that so many of these things that people think are solutions or assume to be true aren't. And it's, and it's not until we are brave enough to change our minds that we're going to make any progress. We're just going to be telling the same story in 10 years. And I really don't want to be doing that. Well, it's been such a pleasure having you here. I have a couple more quick questions before we wrap it up. Okay. love for you to finish the following statement with your first thought. Connection is scary. (laughs) Also, also beautiful. I think beautiful was maybe my first thought. And then I answered it with my second. (laughs) It was real. Body images. Complicated. Diet culture is. Bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) And recovery is. Possible. Thank you so much for your time today and for all the incredible work that you've put out into the field to help others recover. I so appreciate you and everything you do, the difference that you're making in the world. It is so, so needed. And thank you for being here with me today. Thank you for listening to Equip to Recover. Remember, recovery is not only possible, it is worth it. Find out more about Equip and how you can access treatment that works over at Equip.health.